0: Hello everybody and welcome to a special episode of On the Screen, currently on my screen and on all of our screens over the past couple of weeks is uh, Jacques Rivette's Out 1. We'll be talking about that film especially and all the films in the Jacques Rivette collection that Arrow recently put out. It's a very handsome box set that I was going crazy almost to uh, Jean-Pierre Lowe levels waiting for in the mail, <laughs> ready to just tear everything apart and blow this conspiracy up, but luckily it did arrive at my doorstep. There's no evil forces out to get me um joining me to discuss these wonderful films are aaron west aaron how's it going
1: hey scott thanks for having me
0: hey, thanks for joining uh mark herney mark
2: hey scott good to be here thanks for having me
0: and making i believe this is your criterion cast debut uh martin kessler
3: i think so thank you for having me
0: so,
2: one hey, of thanks us. For coming aboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah really. pleasure to be here <laughs>
0: we'll make you a member of the 13 yet whether you know it or not or or the four or the, the four yeah <laughs> you know it has anyway. to start somewhere i'm sure it didn't start with 13 people in a room
1: you could be the guy with the uh, harmonica
0: martin <laughs> it's
3: gonna be playing some dissonant music I'm, i think i'd rather peddling. be doing a uh, throat singing on the beach but
0: <laughs> nice. to each their own i guess that's works, uh yeah. by way of introduction i'm sure listeners are Relatively familiar with most people on this podcast, but just uh as a way of getting to know where we're coming from with Rivette, whose films have long been unavailable, and for most of us, I think diving in this box set was kind of a eye-opening experience. Um, but just as a way of getting to know everybody, I want to go around the circle and say the first Rivette film you came across and your favorite theatrical rehearsal exercise in Out One. So for me, <laughs> the first uh, Jacques Rivette film I saw was Celine and Julie Go Boating*. About Four years ago now but then there's a long gap before i ever saw any other revet uh and i think my favorite rehearsal exercise was the one with uh bernadette Enfroy, where she has to be completely non-responsive as everyone's trying to shake her out that was the first Hmm. rehearsal exercise they did where i was like okay there could be something to these sequences and there's a reason that he's (laughs) putting them in there uh aaron what was your first and did any stand out to you
1: uh, you know, actually, my first was also uh, Celine and Julie, but there's kind of an asterisk there because I was recovering from surgery and uh, I found out uh, that that's not the best movie to watch when you're uh, on pain meds. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'd say my official first one was Le Pont du Nord, uh, which was just a couple of years ago, or actually may, may have been within the last year. Uh, so, but my, let's see, my favorite uh, <laughs> theatrical sequence, I, I think the Bonjour, uh, when they. We're going back and forth with saying uh, hello in different ways. That was it's fun. A,
0: it's a very cordial choice of you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Mark. What, what about you?
2: Well, this uh, this whole talking about Rivet thing that you put together, Scott. Again, thank you. Was my impetus for jumping into Jacques Rivet. Been wanting to do it for a while, and of course, the box set on the horizon. So I actually asked you where I should start, and I took your advice. So I went with Duel. Uh, which was an eye opening experience. I think any first <laughs> Rivette movie is that. And uh, I moved over to Paris Belongs to Us, checking that out, and then watched Out One. And I, I'm going to say, you know, my favorite, I'm a music guy. So I guess the first one that came to mind to me was the where they're practicing some of the musical numbers and then they're screaming. I believe this is uh, with uh, Lily's troupe, if I've got mm. that right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with the screaming.
0: Good, yeah. I,
1: I love that chorus they they would do, you know, the, the, just the kind of the humming and then the explosion of yeah. the, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Martin, how about yourself?
3: I think uh, maybe I'd half seen Vassevoir, which was uh, one of his more recent films, but the first one I actually watched all the way through, knowing it was a Revet film, was uh, Celine and Julie, also, and then quickly went on to uh, Le Pont de Nord. I, I should probably say I'm the only person here i think who doesn't have the arrow box set i actually have the carlotta one so maybe we can compare and contrast a bit yeah for uh, sure. and uh i think my favorite theater exercise is probably the same as Aaron's, if only because uh, when i was in university the film department was right next to the theater department so you know you'd be walking by and seeing uh acting students doing some of these exercises saying uh the same word over and over again back to each other and sometimes you'd be walking by and saying oh is that a real fight no it's just uh, just <laughs> actors <laughs> so it felt a little bit uncanny seeing that in out one
0: yeah i think anyone who spends some time around uh, theatrical troops or theatrical environments will recognize at least something from these the kind of strangeness of the way people relate in those environments uh strangest and and warmth i, I find mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't really know how to introduce out one as a, as a film to say what it's uh, about. I have a I have a sense of the central narrative. I think it's telling, um, but it's you know kind of loosely about an investigation of a possible conspiracy. And listeners, we should say we're we're going to spoil this film pretty intensively because there's really no way you can talk about it without even getting to the like the halfway point at least. <laughs> um, so why not go all the way? But the whole film is on Netflix. It's well worth checking out. It's not maybe the ideal first Jacques Rivette film, because it is so difficult to get into in that first episode, especially is not the most friendly. Um, but if you can get past that, if you can just kind of let yourself roll with it, it's well worth the final experience. I think for me, I found that uh, sitting on it a couple of weeks after revealed so much about it, uh, whereas watching it, you get kind of caught up in the frustrations of all these theatrical exercises that do go on forever. <laughs> um, but I think by the end, I think with most Rivette films, I end up getting pretty bored at some point or another. <laughs> but by the end, it kind of proves itself. And there's some sort of revelatory experience, even if I can't quite explain it. Um, but for me, this film really... I thought really... a little bit
3: of that, uh, that Alfred Hitchcock quote about how um, cinema is life with the boring bits cut out. And I, At times, I sort of thought that uh, <laughs> Out 1 is life with the boring parts still in. It's sort of a film that attempts to... <laughs> express or capture sort of the complexity, spontaneity, grandeur of uh, life itself. And I I think that makes it quite a formidable film, at least.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Speaking of that quote, I thought about uh, Jean-Luc Godard's process in making Breathless, where he had this like three hour film that he had to cut down to 90 minutes. And so he is more or less credited with inventing jump cuts purely by cutting out all the boring bits.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I loved in the documentary uh, they they were talking about scenes where they were improvising and really not not uh, getting anywhere um and they thought they were just boring like the ones with uh Sarah and uh was it um Pauline and <laughs> yeah. but, and they they made it in the film anyway with them just really sitting around a kitchen table uh, smoking cigarettes so you know it's I I think Rivette just wanted to include everything everything that they brought
0: Well, yeah, that might be a good way of getting in the film is just explaining its process, which I wasn't completely aware of when I started watching and kind of wish I was. But this was essentially an entirely improvised film. You know, Rivette had a loose scenario that he went for, but allowed the actors to create their own characters. They certainly created all their own dialogue. And so the shooting of it only lasted six weeks, even though it's this 13 hour film. And the shooting ratio was very small. They, you know, they only did a couple of takes at most and mostly just used the first take of everything and didn't cut out a whole lot beyond that.
3: It uh, it reminded me a lot of Freeform Jazz, this sort of mutating, diverging, tangential thing that kind of works gradually to a a specific conclusion. You know, you have this sensation that the film is kind of growing and expanding before your eyes as you're watching it.
0: Expanding, yeah, and then sort of, I think by the end, contracting and Mm -hmm. focusing. I, I think it really... To me, this is what really stood out to me: is uh, focusing around Tomas and his experience of trying to or realizing that so many things in life had passed him by. I think even right at the beginning, of the first time we see him on screen, <laughs> writhing about on the ground and making <laughs> uh, intelligible noises, uh, unintelligible noises. Um, <laughs> I think he, even in that scenario, he kind of seemed to me be standing apart from the group, not only because he's older than the rest of them, but there's just something about his demeanor that seems to be like trying to be a part of something that he can't quite access he never seems as sort of invested he always seems to be kind of playing at that anyone I mean, else one of feel my favorites uh
3: well one of my favorite lines I, I think there's um two of the women are saying oh we're going to go watch a movie and I, I think it's thomas who says wait don't you want to watch us rehearse don't you want to watch hmm. the theatrical <laughs> rehearsal <laughs> like why wouldn't you want to watch this and of course they say yeah. like no but uh it's
2: kind of i mean there. we're
3: we're here watching the theater rehearsal you're sort of uh forced to watch it when you're going through at one.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was and kind uh, of uh I was thinking about you know what what Martin said about it being jazz. I mean, you're kind of this this whole story, you you're kind of plopped at the uh in the middle of whatever has been going on with this uh the secret society and the the film doesn't really begin and it doesn't really end either. Um, you know, so I I kind of thought of that. I One of the movies that, uh, actually a couple movies that I thought of very early on, just from the very beginning, was, um, and I guess, I I don't know if these are, what kind of connection there really is, but I thought of uh, Pina, the Vin Vendor's film, and the Bob Fosse film, All That Jazz, just about, Mm. you know, uh, dance and the process uh, a bit. Um, So those are two that I, from a comparison standpoint, I thought of. Except those had uh, written dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Very different Uh, films. And, and actually, with the
1: improvisational, if you told somebody that, hey, there's this thirteen-hour uh, movie that's 100% improvised, I could see people getting turned off by it. But I think one of the, uh, the the things that makes Out One stand out is it's not. I mean, there is like a glue that holds it together. It's it's kind of like mm-hmm. a like a Mad Libs that's uh, carefully arranged. And um, and I think right. it's it's worth mentioning. Uh, Suzanne Schiffman is that her name? She was actually the co-director but she was uh, uh, Francois Truffaut's uh, script girl, and act- actually she was played by uh, Natalie Bay in um, Day for Night. Um, and and she, what she did is she was kind of the continuity expert, and she pretty much you know, was uh, like a hawk looking at these uh, improvisational lines and making sure they added up, and, and this got covered some in the documentary, which um, if, you're, if you haven't seen the documentary, I highly re- recommend it. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah it's know.
0: absolutely vital.
1: But yeah, it, it, the movie, even though it, it takes a little while to get its footing, it does function as a, uh, you know, it does go somewhere and I it mean, does before, have a, an engaging uh, narrative.
3: Before I had ever seen the film, I sort of presumed that maybe it was like this uh, art installation kind of a film that was entirely improvised. Like I imagined it as being a sort of uh, Andy Warhol type thing, but I was like, oh, there's characters and a plot sort of and scenes. It's a movie. It's things are happening. Um sometimes it's uh <laughs> sometimes <laughs> uh, well like even um i don't know it, it was sort of there were a few surprises when i watched it because i think um the only stills i had ever seen of it were those famous black and white recap stills so i assumed that the whole film was in black and white so r- mm. right off the bat oh, yeah. i was like oh it's in color that's not what i was expecting it mm-hmm. even that like it, it had such a reputation that preceded it it was like, sort of mysterious extremely long film it's rare it's uh i mean even the title out one to me it had like the ring of uh, area 51 or something like that it was like this forbidden Mm. mysterious film but i I think once you dive into it it ends up being uh maybe more accessible than i i might have
0: expected (laughs) Oh, yeah. And from a narrative level, it's like way easier to follow than any other revet film I've seen. It's very clear, you know, <laughs> what everyone's essentially doing, what they're all about. There's very little kind of fantasy in it. There, mm. I only noticed two moments of fantasy throughout the entire movie. One when the, uh, their dialogue goes backwards and then the other where Pauline stops calling right. in the street. Did anyone else notice any other moments? Because that's kind of a big element of especially a 70s revet is letting fantasy in.
2: No, I I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, a, uh, maybe not Tennessee,
0: but there's like uh,
3: pulpy sort of elements to it. Oh I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, it's, it's pulp uh, all over. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. um, and we could talk about that a little bit too. Like, I I think uh, especially the scene on the rooftop where she has the mask and the pistols. Like right away, I thought, oh, this is like uh, Le Vampire or this is like Judex. And then I think Ravette confirmed mm. that in the making of documentary. But that made me sort of uh, think about Out One in context of these uh, silent era serials which are also sort of long form stories narratives you know i, I think like you could watch le vampire as like a five hour long film so it's sort of maybe consider out one a little bit like um, uh, a nouvelle vogue serial or something like that
1: mm-hmm. and it really yeah. is episodic too I, in mm-hmm. fact i i love the way they they use those black and white photos to uh, recap and and I, I love the little drum score they use at the beginning and uh, and I believe at the end as well. Um, but yeah, it functions. Even though some some episodes are, are more challenging than, than others, especially the first, really the first three, I think were the most challenging for me. Mm-hmm. The latter five, I, I think, really worked as a, a series.
0: Well, and in every episode, there's a, like a genuine cliffhanger, <laughs> which I <laughs> did not expect at all.
2: Yeah, I, I liked how the uh I, you know you talked about the pictures at the beginning, the black and white, and those pictures are, they're obviously stills from the film, but they're not either, because they are kind of off uh, at a different angle than they were originally within the film, I noticed, so it's a nice kind of recap of important events from the previous film, if you can call them events, um, but they're off a little bit that they're, you know, not uh, taken from the exact same uh, vantage point, so I thought that was and interesting. And
3: I think um, the they had photographs sol- are 35 millimeter or medium format, and the whole film's in 16 millimeters, so it, like just... Right away, they have sort of a, a photographic look that the film doesn't quite have, which makes them stand out. Mm. It's uh, yeah, they're they're like production stills.
1: Well, they they actually had a photographer on the set so that was shooting those those photos and and separate from the the, the camera, so they they weren't actual uh, from from the film.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty like common uh, production thing is to have a. A stills photographer because then you can i think more so at that time than you do now now those kind of photographs get integrated into magazine articles or Mm -hmm. uh online uh features and stuff but then they would use those photographs and put them in theater lobbies or whatever for coming attractions or for whatever's currently playing
2: Oh, so it wasn't wasn't like the room uh, where they actually have two cameras uh, next to each other. I was picturing something like that. But no, (laughs) separate cameras make sense. A green screen on the roof. Right. (laughs) Sorry to bring up the room on a Rivette podcast. Wow, we just went
1: completely downhill, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) As soon as
0: you throw the room in there, uh, all our brains freeze. Um, So yeah, the the film kind of loosely tracks these two theatrical troops uh, rehearsing two different plays one is seven against thieves the other is Prometheus bound and then these two characters who are investigating them uh revet is often i think known for doing a lot of films with female protagonists but this film to me i think had i think the three main characters you could kind of say lily is a part of them too but i think she's so distanced from so much of it so to me the three main characters are tomas colin and uh Frederique. Frederique. Um, right. So that kind of tilted towards a male perspective, even though there are so many female characters in it. Uh, did that stand out to anybody or does this seem like a particularly male film as compared to his other films?
1: Hmm. I would say that uh, that Colin was the, the driver of the plot through his investigations, you know, once he uh, drops the harmonica. But I, I think that the the actual, at least for me, the most engaging was Frederic uh, Juliette Berto. Uh, I just thought that all of her scenes were were fascinating and and really um, the most entertaining to watch. Uh, but uh, by Jean Pierre Lyon was the connection I think with all the other characters, uh, the connective tissue, if you will.
2: Yeah, it really seemed like a just a, a really you know big. Well, I shouldn't say big cast, but really a conglomerate of the of the cast because you had, you know, characters kind of flitting in and out and you know Pauline uh also known as Emily was kind of a mother character. You saw her her kids at one point uh during the film and she, you know, I almost picked her like she was uh, a queen uh so to speak after okay. you know watching d- uh, Duel kind of brought that into it a little bit. So I I think it was uh really a a mix of of all the characters. I didn't really see it uh dominated by any but would agree with Aaron that you know it really was Colin that uh you know, drove the the plot. And it it was nice to see some kids in there too. I I liked the kind of meta moment of I, there was at one point in the film. I saw you could actually see the shadow of the camera, and you know this being improvised. The there's a there's a point where uh, the the dog is looking at its food. We're we're looking at whatever's you know going on on the screen at Pauline's. Um, house and then the one of the the child one of the kids is looking at the camera and mm-hmm. you know just kind of watching the camera crew what's going on so it's a bit of a mm-hmm. you know more meta moment there that
0: scene had probably the greatest moment of tension where i was sure they're going to just kill that turtle by crushing it in some fashion
1: <laughs> oh yes <laughs> well uh,
0: there were quite a few scenes they almost felt like something
3: from a horror film between like the very long quiet takes that are stationary to the sort of moving camera work like it's uh you get quite a thick tension in this film. It's um uh, I think like a big part of that's maybe the lack of soundtrack too. All the music is uh diegetic, but hmm. just um I don't know the sixty millimeter combined with that sort of fluid spontaneous camera work, it it's like not totally different from uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something like that, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought anyway.
1: And I think it's worth mentioning that the camera work itself was also sort of improvised, and that, that's one thing that really mm. show sh- sh- shined through uh, from the documentary is that, uh, uh, and I forget the gentleman's name, George, was it? Uh, he kind of had uh, carte blanche to just film whatever he wanted, and uh, and it was all used. So. There yeah, was one so year so William Glenn, Glenn was his name. Shot,
3: yeah. um, oh, sorry. Like uh, when the two women are having a conversation in this uh, barge, comes by like a garbage barge being pushed by a little dug boat and the camera sort of follows it and the actors follow it and I kept wondering I wish they mentioned something in the documentary because like as I was watching it I wondered you know, is that choreographed is that 100% spontaneous is it somewhere in between there are so many moments that I feel like either they're getting things that are almost too good to be true these happy accidents or it's uh, staged so carefully that it appears completely spontaneous but I guess it's all improvised it's all uh just reacting to the environment and to the actors the camera work
1: I, I think yeah. some things were improvised but I they had to you know tie it together like I mentioned Schiffman and they they did mention the letters mm-hmm. uh, that was just a throwaway line by uh I believe the character was Eddie Yen, uh during his confer- conversation with uh Francois Fabian who Maud, if you've seen uh the Romare film um uh, and so what they did is they had a, a scene with Berto stealing the letters later, but uh, you could tell with that scene, which also was a great scene, uh, with the chess uh, playing chess right. for a little while or playing learning chess, chess. Against himself, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and then of course she has to find uh, the letters at some point, but you could tell that uh, most of that was just uh, the improvisation between the two characters, mm-hmm. and it was actually that was one of my favorite scenes. I did yeah, like I mean, this we idea mentioned...
3: of uh, playing chess against yourself and. Uh the acting exercises are sort of like acting against yourself at times. And Mm -hmm. even the film, it sort of feels almost like this uh, sort of self-reflective exercise in uh, Hmm. spontaneous cinematic creation, maybe. So, I don't know. uh, Sorry, I was uh, off topic, but...
0: No, everything's on topic with that one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We can go wherever we want. Even (laughs) the room. That's
3: right. I mean, any any mention, like, there's like a million things to talk about with any scene. It's... uh,
0: yeah, yeah. We mentioned how some of the improvisation can be kind of trying, but I think for me, increasingly, I mean, I, this k- film kind of found me at exactly the right moment because I've been more and more interested in, in just kind of watching actors create something out of even nothing. But even just how they fill the spaces in regular narrative films, I saw uh, it just got released, but I saw the film called Too Late last year. Have you guys heard of this? It was all shot on thir- all shot and all exhibited on thirty-five, and it take, it's just five, I think. Uh, takes uh, that takes place over the course of one reel of film. And in mm-hmm. that film, you could really tell that the actors are so inexperienced and so unresourceful that anytime something goes a little bit wrong with the choreography, they don't really know how to fill the space. But mm-hmm. uh, everything during the course of this film, I never really felt like the actors were adrift. You know, I felt like they are Even if the conversation wasn't, you know, exactly driving a central narrative, I mm-hmm. always got a sense of... Uh, something pushing it along and sense of their investment and willingness to kind of roll with the punches. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine, like, uh, I I think it was um, the, uh, which uh, Pauline's character, uh, trying to think of her name, um, Augier, who she was speaking about how, and she was really the one that uh, I think vocalized this in the documentary about how difficult it was to improvise uh during that time and i was you know considering that is it easier to learn your lines and then act so to speak or is it easier to improvise but you know that puts a it just seems like that puts more pressure maybe on the actors because they're the ones coming up with the dialogue and uh doing the acting um you know and, and rivette kind of uh, steps away uh, a bit so it's something i was considering watching the uh, the documentary
0: well, they talked about how uh, Bernadette Lafont was not comfortable at all with the improv- improvisation, but I think yeah, the Sarah result character. is her performance. Yeah, she Sarah has this totally other other energy compared to the rest of the cast, and mm-hmm. you get the sense of her kind of holding all this power that she's kind, she could unleash at any moment. Especially in that scene with Colin at the end of episode seven, where right. her dialogue starts running backwards, you really oh, you yeah. really sense yeah. that she's in much more control of. The scenario than anyone else
1: yeah i think the, the the three that really got into it were berto lonsdale and of course leon uh, and I, I think that they were the most compelling when they were on the screen
3: well, uh, it, it seems but... like Rivette gave them a lot of prompts to like talk about balzac uh, or <laughs> whatever <laughs> you know they, they seem to have uh, if not exact dialogue written out they at least had you know, topics of conversation while other scenes it seemed like revet was a little bit like uh, talk about whatever bye
2: hmm. right. yeah, i'd be curious what uh, romare's uh you know if his dialogue was written or maybe he wrote it ahead of time or if it's i mean he's uh kind of a balzac uh, uh aficionado i believe so maybe that just came from his memory but yeah I'm curious
1: yeah i think it probably was uh, from his memory he hmm. he knew what he's talking about
0: yeah from everything i read that was kind of my impression is that Ruvet cast him specifically because he knew that he could say anything that he was asked about uh, Balzac,
3: yeah. I mean, Apparently I he was the uh... only
1: one that knew about Balzac. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't
0: read
3: Balzac, so I felt a little bit... In the dark or i felt like some of the references were maybe going over my head and then while watching it kind of occurred to me like maybe the the character hasn't read balzac he's just uh posturing and then of course when they, they say in the making of like oh yeah i never read that or even Revet says like yeah i didn't read those stories <laughs> so i felt a little right. bit better about uh just a little balzac references We're not alone.
1: (laughs) And Colin would just kind of fixate on, uh, you know, little bits, uh, like a line or two from Balzac. So (laughs) who knows if the actor read the whole thing or really comprehended it or if he really needed to.
0: There is a, in addition to Balzac, I think there's kind of a real sense of French history kind of permeating throughout this. I've been listening to this podcast series uh, about the French Revolution and listening to that, there's so many like secret societies that pop up during that time. (laughs) And there's kind of this whole era of paranoia surrounding in the time of the revolution. And I think in some ways that's carried through into this movie, you know, there's obviously the secret society of the 13 and then the sense Colin has that there's these larger forces controlling his life and controlling all of French society. I think there's something, I mean, I'm not, you know, an expert on French culture or anything, but I, I think, uh, maybe it was Rivette. Even the documentary mentioned that he's found Balzac to be the most French of all writers, and mm-hmm. I think this is a, more so than a lot of other films in the French New Wave. I think this is much more engaged with French, specifically culture.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you can't really uh, talk about it without addressing uh, May uh, in May sixty eight. Uh, oh yeah, big time. Recent history. I mean, it really is a zeitgeist, zeitgeist movie in that uh, respect, and and also uh, with the uh, the way they they had the the rehearsals, it was almost kind of like primal screen therapy, which uh, was popular in the U.S. and I'm guessing r- around that time, and I'm, I'm guessing it, that some of that derived from that in France. Uh, but yeah, it didn't. Now, and I'm not a theater expert. I don't, I don't really know how a rehearsal process works, but I think this was a little different and more uh, 70s ish. Uh, do you guys know? I mean, a,
0: a lot of these kind of exercises certainly are in play. I mean, even in my high school theater group, there would be kind of these theater games you play and they're kind of guided exercises that are really just about getting people more comfortable physically and emotionally with one another in a concentrated
1: time period. To this extent?
0: <laughs> well, not for, you know, in high school, they weren't going to have us grabbing at each other, but...
1: Um, <laughs> well, I, I think, like, I other.
0: mean,
3: in the depiction of the theater, I think... Like in general, this movie's pushing towards the fringes, fringe culture, fringe ideas, fringe theater goes along with that. I think maybe as an attempt to escape that post-1968 malaise, that 70s malaise that was Mm -hmm. prevailing uh, in France. Well, other places in the world too. I think America, also 1968, was sort of a boiling point for the counterculture and the youth. And Czechoslovakia, you think about the Prague Spring and the Soviet invasion. I, I think like, I don't know, something in the air about that time uh, so out one feels very much an expression of the uh what's next what what's now we have to go outwards
1: and yeah the the, the youngsters were I, most of the uh the theater participants were pretty young whereas the 13 uh, the ones we you know that are established as the, as the 13 are a little older i'd say uh, eddie and for sure and some some people we never actually meet they're not on camera um like uh like pierre we never seen pierre
0: Igor too, which kept throwing me off. I kept, because I couldn't yeah, keep track I, of any I of the characters' some names of them were characters like that showed episodes. up later in the film, because there's some characters
3: I'm not always sure at first who they're supposed to be. Like, uh, I mean, near the end, there's like the, the Marlon Brando lookalike introduced. And I was right. like, is yeah. he supposed to be, uh, someone that I should know? Um, you don't want to know him. No, no. Was, <laughs> a little angry. <laughs> I
2: mean,
3: that's a very uncomfortable sequence. It goes on very, very long. The,
2: uh, Beating. Yeah, I kept expecting yeah. the 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 characters to kind of flitter. I I thought we might see Igor and um, Pierre at some point and actually have them be one of the the other actors. Like Colin suddenly shows up and is, is Pierre or mm-hmm. something. But I mean, mm-hmm. no. I mean, if if I was going to if ever make a top five, you know, unseen characters, I could certainly you know put the, those two characters on, on a list like that. It's uh, it's interesting. I I think too. I mean, I was I was thinking of. Um, you know, the small uh, or kind of the larger scope of this with the secret society. But there's also kind of the small scope where it, it almost seemed like one of the troops like Thomas's might be actually rehearsing underneath uh, her, you know, kind of cafe there because uh, there's a moment when I think it's Sarah actually walks out of the basement and you don't really know where that scene kind of plays. So it kind of plays with that, you know, small secret society, grand plans, um, you know, uh, Apocalyptic, what's bubbling uh, under the surface kind of ideas, for sure.
1: And they're developing, uh, you know, <laughs> Aeschylus and uh, uh, what was, uh, who was the, uh, was it Sophocles that did Thebes? Uh,
0: I thought they were both Aeschylus. Yeah, I Aeschylus oh, did they, both. They, were, yeah,
1: they yeah. were, I'm sorry.
0: Much of the film kind of takes place in these rehearsal sequences, but I think the film for a lot of people really starts to pop once it starts exploring the city and getting out to the coast a lot more. Uh, Rivette's films is almost entirely... I mean, most of the films of his I've seen take place in Paris. And I think he mm-hmm. gets at a sense of the city in a different way than Godard, who's for whom Paris was almost kind of like a playground. Or uh, Romare Truffaut, which was, Paris was like a workplace. Uh, for mm-hmm. Rivette, I feel like Paris was kind of an outgrowth of this artistic movement. And even the spots where you can see kind of the more industrial areas, they all kind of feel... Uh, like, theatrical environments to me.
1: You could say that about Paris Belongs to Us and Le Pont de Nourdes as well. Oh, big uh, time. Very Parisian mm-hmm. films, and and he's not he's not afraid to show the, 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 the magnificence of the city, the Eiffel Tower. Uh, I, I remember that there's a quote, uh, it might have been Godard, was, uh, that said that the he would eat breakfast every day in the Eiffel Tower because that was the only place in the city he couldn't see that monstrosity. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. I mean, there's so many shots of the skyline, and in his uh, previous film La uh Rivette like also has a sort of similar ways of photographing the city and of getting outside and uh, I think it comes up again in some of his later films like uh, Céline and Julie it's more about getting away from uh, the city or uh, La Pente Nord*. also it's uh, you think of the way there's like similar scenes with the maps and we're going to go exploring mm-hmm. and go into these uh, sort of unexpected backdrops to have these uh scenes play
2: out yeah you see a lot of uh in in the you know the you see the maps where they're kind of they're looking for uh what is it renault and they're kind of separating the city into these what they're calling uh gates uh, which is really like looks like a subway uh entrances um you know that that are the gates and i i thought it was he had a really nice use of didn't use this throughout but Uh, Use of sound because you had the you had the noise of the city, the outside world. It would just cut between you know the cars on the street. Uh, It was very loud, juxtaposed with a quiet um, kind of community and and reading of the troop. And of course, sometimes the troop was a little loud too. But um, (laughs) it was a interesting uh, kind of juxtaposition, I think, uh, between those two. And he would you know sometimes fast cutting, sometimes longer uh, scenes between the two. And you even got a a sense of, there was one point where I think these were like garbage trucks, uh, or mail, probably mail trucks, these green trucks that almost reminded of a, uh, you know, maybe military vehicles going throughout the city. Um, you know, just kind of, uh, thought of it that way. So really interesting use of sound diegetic, you know, sounds, as you mentioned, I even noted, uh, the only time where it wasn't really music, but you heard water, uh, where it, uh, obviously, you know, Rivette had added that to the soundtrack uh, mm-hmm. when one of the uh, the scenes was actually uh, playing like it was underwater. So just, uh, you know, difference there.
0: Yeah. yeah, and that scene where they're all separating, uh, looking for Renault, there's a the sense that they feel that they can somehow conquer or contain the city by going to the end of its subway lines only to find that, you know, or, well, not, they don't even vocalize this, but the, we're left to gather that there's no way that they can account for everything going on in the city.
1: Yeah. And the final shot is, uh, I, I forget the name of the the character, but she's still out there in the city, uh, just hypnotized by a statue. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that sh- final shot is such a kind of like, <laughs> fuck you to everybody who thought they kind of had this figured out because it, it ends with this such an emotional scene and, you know, gazing towards the sunset and then, nope, we're back to Paris, and then it yep. had the black. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny too, though. He changed the
3: ending for um, the, the condensed cut, Spectre, uh I know, did you have maybe a different take on Spectre? So it's like, in some ways, it does feel like its own film. It does feel like, a, apart from No Lie, it's it's like a not just a shortened version and that things are changed, scenes are intercut. Uh, do you think he's maybe making a different point with the two cuts of the film, or are they, you know, can can you
0: just substitute one for the other? Oh, I don't think you can substitute no. one for the other at all. <laughs> in part because the editing is so different and mm-hmm. uh, Spectre is almost impossible to kind of read on a narrative level because so much is cut out. And you have to, even between scenes, he does that thing of inserting the black and white stills to kind of, like we said, kind of it's, cut out the boring uh, bits. It's, so it's to kind speak. of funny.
3: like Spectre, you'd think the shorter film would be the one that you get uh, less lost in but it's oh, not, yeah. at all. No, not at all <laughs> it's a, i like i wouldn't it... recommend people watch spectre before watching uh Noli it's um even though it's shorter and you might want to say oh well i'll watch the short version and then see it sort of elaborated on i think it's uh, such a different experience that maybe maybe you should watch the long version first
0: <laughs> yeah back in 2007 when there, there was kind of a u.s tour of out one uh, I was living in Boston at the time going to school and I didn't know really anything about Rivet, but I knew Outland was this crazy rare film that, you know, you couldn't see anywhere else. And so they were doing this little Rivet series, but they were only showing Outland Spectre. And so I was like, well, screw that. I'm not going to see that. I'm going to wait for the long version. I'm glad I did, because <laughs> if I'd seen Spectre first, I would have never in my life right. gotten to the 13 hour I mean, version. There was something I, I
3: like I... about it, like um, the fact that some scenes are intercuts, that it feels like they're happening
0: at the same time i think uh yeah that gives it a bit of momentum <laughs> on the whole i just found it so like impenetrable and the ending was so much less developed you know it kind mm-hmm. of just ends with colin lost in the mystery where is the tower yeah. kind of push through that
1: hmm. see I, I haven't seen it but i, I kind of get the impression that it was more tr- of course it, it's obviously truncated but that it was more accessible and easy to consume i i figured that a lot of the long theatrical shots were, were removed so it, you, you're saying it really it's just more confusing
0: well, yeah, because they uh, still have those same long sequences, but they just cut them to be shorter. So you don't get even the connective tissue within those scenes. Mm. And the rhythm is just so frustrating because the way they cut through those is to insert these black and white stills with this mm. kind of ominous music playing underneath it. So you're kind of constantly frustrated. Every time you start to get in a groove, it's just it's very, black uh, and white stills. and staccato. Brrr. Like the rhythm of
3: it's very unusual. You sort of think that you're yeah. on its wavelength and it'll throw you completely off and... I mean, like, I do like that it does give you the sense that, um, some things are happening at the same time. I think that's what advantage it maybe has instead sort of things coming at you more sort of a stream. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I kind of wish maybe the full version had a little bit of that, um, cause it is sort of exciting like, especially when it works towards the ending, when you're sort of, actually the pace gets pretty fast. I, I think, um right around the end when it's just jumping all over the place uh, but
0: um,
3: yeah, yeah but I think one a, of the things
0: I liked about uh, Out 1 is the way that you have to kind of think about what all the other characters are up to while you're spending right. time with you know one or two of them mm-hmm. because by the time those characters then do re-enter the movie you can tell that they've been doing other things there's mm-hmm. not a sense where there's it, it in gives most you a movies of them kind of stopping and starting based on process. the narrative
3: right exactly and Even that, like, you can't watch uh, the full version all in one go. So, you know, I mean, I watched it over three nights and it does give you time to sort of think about what those characters (laughs) are doing in between. And you sort of, um, you know, during the day can wonder a little bit about it. It's it's not Hmm. so different from watching like a television miniseries or something like that where you're kind of, um, because it's episodic, you can engage with it in that way.
1: Yeah, I have watched it over three weeks, and I, I think I'm going to wait about a year or two for Spectre, <laughs> uh, which actually I think it makes sense. You know, you want to you want to go into it a little bit fresh.
0: Yeah, did it play well over three weeks? Because I had always been advised to kind of watch it in the most condensed form possible, and I watched sure. it over five days, and even that felt kind of too long.
1: It well, I'll be honest that the first couple episodes. Yeah. Were, I I had to spread those out, and I think I probably spent about two weeks on the first three, and then the last five I got through in about a week. Uh, but no, I, I it's you don't really forget. Uh, I mean, as much as you can remember, uh, you know, there's so many characters. <laughs> but and, and well, I'm not gonna rewatch it. But I, I think I, I yeah, I think it functioned. Um, and I, actually, I kind of appreciated coming back to it after a little bit of a break. Uh, you know, a night's sleep so sometimes a day's sleep after some of them yeah i'm glad
0: i didn't watch in that two-day format that's been shown at across uh the...
1: yeah it'd be a bit yeah. much i mean yeah, do that would, you that would feel
3: um mm-hmm.
0: how do you feel like
3: this is apart from maybe watching something that's made for television like it still feels to me uh cinematic and um it, it's a little bit hard to think of watching this the way you know you might watch um you know even though it's serialized it it doesn't quite feel like it's uh written for t v or made for t v in the way that uh Brevet said well, maybe we can sell it to t v and show it in that format you know it's um it it's unwieldy and it's impractical to show this in theaters, but that seems to be the right way to watch out one
1: hmm yeah, um, Rivette
0: felt the same, and I think it really holds up to that I mean I haven't seen it in theater obviously, but I do wish I was mm-hmm. able to and I think uh, someone, I think maybe it was Martin Yu said earlier that it kind of functions as a silent serial for the new wave. And I, I th- think that's very informative and it would benefit from having this kind of large screen format and watching it with an audience. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, it is kind of a lot to demand. I mean, the silent serials, they were much shorter. You know, they'd be 30 mm-hmm. to 60 mm-hmm. minutes and they'd be shown as part of a double bill or whatever. But uh, to do these kind of hour and 40 minute episodes without... Anything else to add on to it would be a lot to keep coming back to the theater for.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, he d- he didn't seem like he had really planned out the exhibition. Oh, no, yeah. Uh, hmm. but, but, uh, <laughs> and, and I don't know how, how many people actually got to see at one during the time. Apparently not too many. But I, I kind of wonder how much the, this uh, influenced other, you know, scenes from A Marriage and then later down the road, uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz mm-hmm. seemed to kind of follow this template a little bit uh, I mean, the template of the the episodic nature, not the, not the. N- nobody follows the template about one, I think, except for maybe Le Pont de Nord.
3: Well, it's funny in the making of documentary. Rivette was one of the first people to be like, "Oh no, this isn't unique." Uh, like he talked a lot about being inspired by uh, Jean Rouch, who I, I guess was sort of like, yeah. um, not not quite part of the New Wave, but a bit like Alain René's maybe more a predecessor. But Rivette talked about uh, going to see a rough cut or assembly cut of Rouch's film, But the Petit. Appetit. And it was like 11 and a half hour long rough cut or assembly cut, even though the final film, which you can watch on YouTube was like an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and it's about a Nigerian who travels to Paris to study, I guess, engineering and architecture of these large buildings, but he kind of gets swallowed up in Paris life. And it's a good film, but it's a little bit hard to see what Rivette saw in it just because, uh, we get such an incredibly condensed version of that, but I guess, you know, it's very improvisational and.
0: But Ravette's influences and kind of points of departure. I mean, if you read his criticism from Cagliari de Cinema, he always kind of latched on to details that nobody else was and was especially interested in the way genre gets subverted and watching the actors fill spaces. And so even if you were to see the full version of that film, I don't know if you'd necessarily get where uh, he was coming from. I mean, Brevet had some uh, always surprising opinions
3: about which films he liked or didn't like. And, like, you know, he's one of the people who would champion uh, Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls or things like that. You sort of say, oh, but <laughs> who,
1: who knew? Interesting. Well, you know, he's of, – of all the – and the new wave, I don't really think of it as – I mean, it is a movement, but, you know, you, you can't really put everybody's films next to each other. There, there's really not a not a trend you can uh, – you know, like Truffaut and Godard are very different. René and Rivette, Romer, Romare are very different. But R- Rivette seems especially to be the outlier uh, in, in that he, he was really doing his own thing. He really didn't care about uh, – I mean, obviously, he wanted to be seen, but he he wasn't thinking about commercial success. Uh, he was really just thinking about expressing his art. Uh, not that the others weren't, but I think he was just going a little further than anybody else. And actually, he probably was less successful as a result.
3: I mean, do you think that's partly why he was never really popular in North America?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, there are some similarities you can see, you know, if you watch... Um, yeah, Pierre You can say, "Oh, I can tell that like yeah. these were all going on at once. That uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about Balzac and unusual editing, but you're right that he does feel very much outside of uh, you know. There were certain conventions that came out of that New Wave, but he does feel mm-hmm. like somebody who um, you know marched to the beat of his own uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> discordant drum. So.
1: And you could say that Rene did as well, uh, but in a different, very different way. Uh, I'd say Rene was closer to the the actual, you know, to, to somebody like Godard than Rivette. I'd say Rivette was pretty far out there, actually. Uh, I don't. What do you think, Scott?
0: I'd actually put Rivette kind of closer to Romere. I think they're both more invested in literature than the rest of the New Wave. Hmm. Uh, comparisons have been made between out One and kind of a novel, and yeah. I think that's easy to do with any film this long. But hmm. I think it's structure too of having all these different threads that don't seem to be related but are and which go off in different directions that don't necessarily relate to a main plot and then which ends with this sort of like grand expression that's telling but doesn't explain everything and there's a lot about it i think that's pretty novelistic and they're
3: very uh talky the yeah. <laughs> Romero's films and yes. the best <laughs> films tend to be very talky and it's somebody who uh you know, reading that many uh, subtitles whose uh, first language isn't English, it can be a little bit exhausting <laughs> sometimes for either filmmaker.
1: Yeah. Romero though, it seems like it's a, a, they're a lot more structured. You know, there's oh, a plot sure. narrative. Yeah. Uh, that, so I, I I almost see him as more contained and, and more, I don't want to say ordinary, but more uh, more accessible than a lot of, you know, even some Godard and definitely Rene and Rivette. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say, I certainly wouldn't. If someone was looking for an entry point to the French New Wave, I would certainly not, you know, su- suggest Jacques Rivette. I mean, he certainly. <laughs> oh no. You know, it's he's <laughs> or, someone or you want to come to. you should to start once
3: with and Jacques Rivette and say, "Oh, you get the hard part out of the way. The rest is just uh, <laughs> right." Not to the point. <laughs> you know, after out one, everything should seem like a breeze, right?
2: Mm. Right. Yeah, I yeah, will never the, come back. The, the sheer length. <laughs> they'll and, never see 400 Blows. <laughs> which also features Balzac, if I remember, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, just the, the combination of, you know, the theatricality, uh, I I think there's certainly an air of, well, the, you know, the sheer length of, <laughs> of his films uh, at this point, and he, he does, it just feels like he has a kind of an existential uh, feel to his film, which is something I, I always latch on to myself, mm-hmm. so I, I'm... Starting to come around to him. You know, he's I'm still kinda new to it and I, I should really take to that. So looking forward to seeing more. But he's you know, he even has some some uh religious I mean he he talked about uh some religious aspects during the documentary. So he's not uh, shunning that either. So there's certainly, you know, that, that comes into play uh, I like with him.
3: Uh, what he said at the very end, you know, fade to black or crossfade if you believe in an afterlife. That's <laughs> it, mean, that uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was very yeah. nice. I, another film uh, I'd seen recently for a podcast um, that this sort of reminded me of in a roundabout kind of way is uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer's Gertrude, which also mm-hmm. has these long takes and people sitting and talking or sitting and not talking and of course all the shots with the mirrors so i don't know that popped into my mind a few times while watching out
1: one you know that's that's one i had a lot of trouble with so uh yeah i I could tell it's more accessible than out one but uh but yeah that i i could see a little bit of as far as the difficulty parallel maybe i'm alone in that Uh, i don't know if anybody here has seen gertrude besides martin I've not. No, I haven't. I bought I, that
0: uh, BFI box set though, so it's waiting. It's.
1: Uh,
3: <laughs> I I really like it, but uh, you know maybe it's not for everyone. But I I don't do. You, uh, I mean, I feel like one of the first things. Not that I feel this way about Out One, but I, I can imagine a lot of people saying, "Oh, thirteen hour long film that must be very indulgent, and it's maybe a filmmaker totally indulging into just uh, whatever they find satisfying without regard for." what an audience might find interesting you know i remember mm. there's like uh, on the audio commentary for um, paris when it sizzles maybe uh richard quine saying uh, uh there was like a party scene and he said well i, I figure it's going to be boring to any spectators but as a, as a director it's just what i wanted to do and <laughs> too bad if you <laughs> find it boring mm. and that film was written by uh julien de vivier to you know keep a criterion con- like connection going oh, but uh interesting nice one Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, thank you, <laughs> you know, so, well I, I don't do you think you know maybe it's fair to say that uh Revet didn't have an audience in mind or do you think you know just mm. a regular person can still uh access and enjoy the film without feeling like I, it's this like indulgent directorial thing
2: yeah i i don't know i it, me at this point i i wouldn't i don't know if i'd call it indulgent but it does i mean he he basically says the first couple of films was, were scripted and he got bored with that so mm-hmm. he you know he wanted to go with just the you know the improv uh, improvisation uh territory and yeah i i could almost go there i it's one of those things um again it's going to take some time but i couldn't recommend Uh, rivet films to anyone but cinephiles you know your average viewer I'd I'd never uh, recommend to them even something maybe that's a little bit easier um, to delve into like when I started with uh, Duel, but that's not to say you know that he's indulgent I just think he you know wants to make the movies that he wants to make Mm -hmm. and if folks want to see them great you know if not I mean the the original out Out one only played at uh, that one theater that I believe the Le Havre Mm -hmm. um, and then it just got shelved until it came again with uh, Spectre so um, yeah, Don't I mean, see, I think the
0: hope for any director is that the film they make will be something that people want to see. But uh Rivette, to his credit, I, I think, because I really love that one. And mm-hmm. I think to his credit, he just kind of went all the way with that idea. You know, I-, I think in the back of anyone's mind, when they're spending a- as much money as it takes to make a film, there's a sense of wanting it to be successful and wanting to make certain concessions, that which are all usually framed, I think, by cinephiles as a bad thing, concessions to the audience, but I think it's a generous thing. Um, But I just think Rivette's sense of generosity just extends in a different direction. There's kind of a post-auteur theory sense that uh, the director is so in control that anything on the screen is just, like, his quote-unquote vision and some point he's trying to make. But what I really like about Rivette on the whole, and that one especially, is that he's open to making any kind of point he might be making by the end of it.
3: (laughs) I mean, it's heroic how liberated the film feels how th- mm. there's sort of a um, room for endless possibilities and I, I think like for people who love very plotty films I mean we talked a little bit about the pulp connections people who love uh soaking up details and trying to fit things together and love sort of these puzzle type movies it's like an endlessly rich experience if you enjoy that maybe uh <laughs> I mean the the theater stuff might not be as much for a person like that but I, I could see somebody who loves uh, You know, for instance, uh, you know, David Fincher's Zodiac and wishes there was like a, you know, 13 hour long version of that film uh, who can't get enough of that. uh, Enjoying out one, maybe.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And I think there is, you know, going back to May of 68, I I think that you can see the 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 free spirited uh, liberation in the actors as well. And I think that's part of its charm and its appeal. And that you you can tell that they really just enjoyed expressing themselves creatively and mm-hmm. knowing that Rivette really didn't obstruct that and actually encouraged it, I think uh, I, I think makes me like the film more. That said, when I was watching it, uh, my wife was around a lot of times and I got some really weird looks. <laughs> <I> <laughs> and imagine. She was. I definitely had to throw taste. on headphones for some of the
0: uh, auditory portions.
3: Yes, <laughs> I mean it kind of gets back to the title, like Rivette said, um, you know he didn't right. want to be. Fashionable, what was in, he wanted to be out. Like in the film, when they say, "Oh, Indian scarves are in this year; everyone's wearing one." Like mm-hmm. he didn't want to be that. He wanted to be not in, but out, which I, I guess is partly where the title came from. So, he is somebody who's not interested in what's trendy or fashionable or what's uh, maybe broadly appealing. He's in pursuit of his own um, aesthetic or his own artistic ideals, I guess.
2: Yeah, it could make and, him yeah. the most uh, the most new wavy of the new wave directors, if you want to think <laughs> of it that way, you know, that, that he is so so far outside and really, uh, you know, the potential of, of changing cinema.
1: And he yeah. said in the interview that uh, he made the film just so it to exist. So, and it does. Yeah. And, it, you know, he, he, he didn't see it for 20 it's... years. <laughs> yeah, me too.
0: Well, and conversely, even though he didn't want to be, you know, what's in or hip, I think this is one of... The, The few new wave films that just kind of uh, lets us see into what exactly it was was like at the time. You know, I mean, Godard was very politically topical, but I think kind of forcefully so, even though I love Godard. (laughs) But um, with this film, you just get a sense of how people hung out with each other, what clothes they were wearing, or Mm -hmm. just kind of the sense of the times outside of any... Uh, anything imposed in the early scenes before there's even any sense of a plot, it's mm-hmm. just kind of life on the street.
1: Oh, this is early seventies. If there's if you're ever going to see it in France, mm-hmm. this is it. This is this is life. I
2: yeah, think. I was curious. I mean, I I don't think we've mentioned the mirrors at all, and it, it's hard not to talk about this film without. And I I did find it. You know, of course, there are a lot of mirror shots. There's the you know iconic one of um, of Pauline, of course, that uh, goes on right. forever and. I thought it was interesting how we never getting into the documentary. We never see Rivet in a mirror. Um, you know, we just see him uh, as he is. I almost thought we'd see something like that because the the interview um, with Augier uh, is is through a mirror too, which I thought was a nice touch. You know, getting uh, seeing her that many years later in the documentary, but yeah, it's certainly uh, I, I don't know if it's reflective, self reflective, uh, or you know, really what he's uh, looking towards in the mirrors. tough question yeah we're
1: speechless
0: um but i i think the architecture getting to kind of a different angle on that point is definitely important the buildings they choose and they talk about that documentary finding that beach house and being like well this is clearly the beach house Mm -hmm. i can't really put it into words but there's something Mm -hmm. so weird about the way it's almost symmetrical but kind of off it seems like kind of two buildings almost smushed together and there's this kind of secret room inside that ends up Seemingly having nothing inside of it, of course, it being a revet film. <laughs> um, but the, it, it d- definitely kind of exists. It has a vision of, I think, architecture as a cohesive unit. Even though there's, there's always disparate spaces, they kind of feel... And they're found spaces, you know, nothing was built mm-hmm. for the film, but they kind of feel like almost they were. That It's a real part of the film's expression.
3: Absolutely. Uh, another criterion film this sort of remind me of a little bit is uh, Vanya and 42nd Street, just... Oh yeah, the, the kind oh, of, yeah. I uh, actually yeah. bought
0: that box set pretty soon after I think it was kind of tickling the back of my brain <laughs> And
1: Andre
3: too <laughs> uh, For sure, um, a, a lot of those lengthy scenes of talking But just the, the sense of like seeing theatre against those types of locations I, you know, I thought a lot about uh, seeing that while watching that one um, I, Well, I the, Vanya on 42nd Street and uh, My Dinner with Andre Those were directed by Louis Malwright Yes. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I wonder Another, if it was uh, influenced by that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Louis Mao was almost kind of a, a he he adapted. His his work is very inconsistent stylistically, but I I think it's all good. Uh, but yeah, these these came, you know, 20 years after he was really quote a French new wave filmmaker and he was a left bank as well.
0: So one of the big things in Out One is this imp- improvisation we keep talking about and how it's kind of an endless rehearsal without a final performance in which the uh, theatrical troops are themselves. You know, they're constantly rehearsing or <laughs> rehearsing around these plays <laughs> that they never end up performing. And what I really like about Revet's approach is they actually, this another, another tangent. Uh, I was listening to an episode of Battleship Pretension where I'm a contributor recently, and they had on uh, Fred Melamed who talked about how his favorite part of putting on theatrical shows and why he stopped kind of doing fewer plays is he really enjoyed the rehearsal process and, how cinema is itself kind of a constant rehearsal. You know, you keep doing takes until you get something kind of inspired or right, whereas in theater, you try to codify it and make it something that's repeatable. But in Out 1, they really take that and make that part of the process, and the whole rehearsal becomes the performance. And in some ways, I was reading an article about how that's kind of built into the film as a whole. There's that part where Colin's uh, rehearsing kind of his confession of love for Pauline, but she's in the next room overhearing uh right, thomas's uh, breakdown at the beach first it's kind of faked and then it kind of transforms into something real and uh that sense of something that's uh people are trying to work out in advance kind of becomes the real thing is kind of embedded in this in a really interesting way
1: i love that scene uh, actually all, all the scenes you mentioned but especially the one with colin and with uh, pauline in the other room and i, I kind of wonder do you think that was improvised I, as with everything in the film probably <laughs> <laughs> well she looked a little uh, uh she didn't really react uh, too much but I, of course that that could have been part of her character but yeah we, we never really do see the uh the final product uh, i have no idea what what either of those plays would look like uh, on stage uh in in their their productions boy it would have been a great supplement Jeez. <laughs> that should have shot it yeah <laughs> i was thinking too
3: like the idea of playing make-believe on an epic scale like a lot of the scenes uh, like I'm not sure if it's quite the Brechtian effect maybe but like you do get sometimes the theatrical qualities giving you this extra distance that allows some of the emotional moments to hit harder like um, the death scene on the rooftop they mention how it is sort of the the blood is phony everything about it is sort of phony but it's Mm -hmm. quite an emotional scene or uh, even at the very end when you have Thomas playing dead And like, there's something very powerful about that. It's uh, playing, it's make-believing. But when he gets up, they hug him, and he cries and laughs, Mm -hmm. and you know, it has that uh, all the world's a stage sort of quality to it.
1: It sort of foreshadows too.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they 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 talked about this being a um, really just a bunch of kids putting this um, this play on, and you know, being part of this group. And you know, it's it's on one hand, it feels like a sophisticated sophisticated group that's really trying to enact change but on the other hand i mean i don't know about you guys but when i was a kid i i had secret societies with my friends of you know we were trying to enact change within our school or within our block <laughs> in our neighborhood so you know it's kind of uh interesting there and i yeah. mean right, that comes across <laughs> as somebody who's very um
3: like is very high energy he's very Obviously smart, intellectual, but he's also very playful, very coy. Like you can mm. see how this film's a reflection or extension of his personality. The playfulness mixed with this, uh, you know, people who talk about Balzac. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, other directors, uh, in in their interviews I think they're a lot more serious about their work. And and I'm not saying that the Rivette was not serious, but he does he does have that playful nature and uh and, and seems to enjoy it, you know that creative element uh, a lot more than what I've seen, you know, say for instance, Godard talking about his work. Sometimes it's like watching dental surgery, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> which is funny because Godard was much more of a self promoter and kind of got this idea of his persona out there. Whereas Ravette, mm-hmm. it wasn't until Celine and Julie that he really became a promotional force in his own films.
1: Yeah. And Godard of course was in Paris to, belongs to us. So, Yeah. yeah. Yep.
0: It's always funny seeing young Godard pop up in those.
1: I know. <laughs>
3: yeah, he's also in um, uh, Cleo from 5 to 7 and a few others, right? He's mm-hmm. sort of pops up. He was uh, like, even more than a director, sometimes you feel like Godard is a personality. Oh, <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah. yeah.
2: It was interesting. I mean, th- thinking of the the French New Wave, I felt like there was only one scene in maybe this entire film that felt like another French New Wave film, uh maybe if you're going to compare it, of course i i guess maybe thinking of Godard, but there's um, there's an extreme long shot very well composed of uh frederick and reno in a meadow Tiens, Bonjour Comment vous appelez
3: Renault
2: Et vous Moi Moi je m'appelle Clarade C'est bizarre Je croirais dans un roman de capet d'épée And then um they they call Frederic calls herself Claire, uh, you know, very French New Wave kind of moment there, I think. And then Renault suggests that they start again. Frederic then looks at the camera, calling um, it a cloak and dagger story. So kind of, you know, mm-hmm. a, a little bit more um, self-reflexive there again. That just felt like more of a, you know, New Wave moment than maybe this yeah, that, other.
0: It's yeah. one of the few scenes out in nature, <laughs> too.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Aaron, you had mentioned, uh, talk about numerology. I tried to do some research into it and felt like I could easily go on to a whole Jean-Pierre Lillard band of Yeti Guthrie completely <laughs> obsessed with it or completely disinterested. <laughs> uh, did you happen to look into that anymore?
1: It's just something you, you pick up on. Of course, the big thing is the, the 13 and, uh, yeah. but, and actually leod throws a lot of numbers out. A lot of the characters throw numbers out. And I, I think that one could, obsessively dissect this movie and try to try to use all the numbers and you know see if there was some sort of meeting and, and maybe there wasn't because it was improvised but again you know I, I mentioned Schiffman, who is basically an ad rock star and you know since she's co-director she she had a big uh a prominent role in in the production of this movie that she probably was looking at those things and and maybe yeah, there is something that adds up, but I don't What's know. The, uh, Martin, do you have any you notes? Know.
3: What's the Russell Crowe film about the mathematician? Hey. Yeah. Oh, that, beautiful. I, yeah. Mind. <laughs> I feel like you could go down that route where you start seeing patterns and things that don't actually exist. I think sometimes if you start looking for patterns, I think just because of the way the human mind works, you start creating them and it doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually something there, but, uh,
2: right. I well, know, just it's like Colin, a little bit right? tempting. So. Yeah. That's kind
0: yeah. of the experience of the film. Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, uh, in one of his, I think probably every essay actually he's written about out one, he tends to repeat himself <laughs> a little bit. Uh, he quotes that bit in gravity's rainbow where, uh, mm. you know, the thing more, uh, insane than the conspiracy mind is, uh, complete anti-conspiracy where nothing is connected. Mm, uh, right. so yeah, this film that's... certainly plays with that in an interesting way of, I there's mean, there's definitely a, in a in lot a way that, like, that, that does feel but... um, uh, Absolutely.
3: And I, I think like there is sort of this tendency to kind of, uh, form conspiracies because i I think the alternative that like there's nothing it's Mm. like this deep existential terror it kind of drives us to make sense and make rational we have religion irrational so (laughs) i I, I think that's like a very sort of like post-1968 kind of uh quality that this film has too so
1: but of course the 13 is all over the place and and i Mm -hmm. and you can tell that he's having fun with that and 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 you know dropping in references as much as possible so, yeah, I, I I wasn't sure if there was anything to it, but I was just it was just something else to explore.
0: Well, speaking mm-hmm. to the element of despair that comes with uh, not finding ultimate conspiracy or finding nothing is connected, there was a scene, uh, one of the few deleted scenes in Out 1 that uh, Rivette took out when the film was kind of informally re-released in 1990. There was this long scene of Colin having this like incredible breakdown. They talk about it a bit in the documentary where he was like yeah. eating furniture and like vomiting and Ultimately, I think from what I read, Rivette felt that it was just too in too personal and too intense to really make part of a, a fiction film. Um, but certainly the first time I watched it, I really feel felt like that scene would have that we really needed it to understand Colin's journey. And I as interesting it would be to see that footage kind of loosely rewatching the last episode, I think you get a sense of the intensity of his breakdown just watching him flick that little keychain back and forth and mm-hmm. finding nothing there uh did you guys feel mm-hmm. like there's something missing in colin's journey from that to the last scene where he ultimately kind of gives it up i i
3: didn't feel like something was uh, missing necessarily but like i i think that really would have helped clarify that like it is a total breakdown that he experiences and um i, I think like especially in the specter cut I, I think his Journey, his breakdown, falling into the conspiracy does feel a little bit uh, uncomfortably truncated.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I felt like uh, just not seeing Spectre. Uh, I felt like his rejection uh, at the end of the conspiracy was earned and well placed and uh, very well done. I mean, it, it felt like a, a complete kind of arc for him. So I, yeah, I thought it was nicely tied up. And
1: I, I think the, the sequence where he's walking through the street and he's repeating the same um, the same phrase and I, I, I didn't write down the mm-hmm. phrase but it was from Equipage. Equipage Equipage Equipage
3: Equipage Equipage Equipage
1: Equipage Equipage 13 uh, pour chasser le snark. 13 pour chasser le snark. Il n'aurait rencontré le bout. I think that kind of probably encapsulated whatever freak out scene we, we don't get to see. I, I really wish we could see that scene because I, I think he's a tremendous actor and I've never seen anything doing anything like that. But, um, but yeah, I, I can understand why they'd cut it out. I, I think you did. You do get his sense of obsession and despair and frustration. And also, you know, with his love interest too, which is unrequited uh, because of mm. that uh, blasted Igor. But <laughs> <laughs> darn Igor. So, so no, I, do, do you know if that scene is anywhere that we can see, or is it gone forever?
0: Uh, I've looked, kind of. As high and low as I would know where to look, I I have uh, some access to some uh, illicit uh, download sites that are frequented by cinephiles, and I thought for sure if anywhere it'd be there. But uh, I think since it was deleted in 1990 before this went to tape or was shown on television, I think it only existed in those kind of like early showings in the 70s mm-hmm. uh, in France. And maybe it's locked up in an archive somewhere and we'll see it someday, but I, I don't know. It'll be out too. <laughs> there you go.
2: <laughs> One second.
0: <laughs> out to the reouting. Well, I've gotten to everything on my notes. Martin, I know you have volumes of notes, but is there anything that kind of stood out to you that we haven't gotten to yet?
3: No, I, I think we covered it. I, my mind's starting to. Starting to wander a little bit, just uh, I mean, <laughs> there's happen. like a lot That's of notes point, of right? like, oh, the shot of the huge sunset on the beach is so beautiful. Or, like, there's a lot of things that don't really tie directly into the conversation. So,
0: yeah, I uh, mean, yeah, I guess just as a, a way of wrapping up, and I want to get to kind of the technical aspects of this presentation on video, but uh, I, I will say that I really, I really liked that one. I wasn't sure actually by the time I finished it how I felt about it, but it, <laughs> Letting it kind of sit for a couple of weeks and just kind of ruminate and kind of revisiting some scenes here and there, which I think is a real benefit of having it available on videos. You can kind of go back and dive in and out as you please. Um, I would actually be down to rewatch this again if I had 13 hours at my disposal. Uh, (laughs) I I really was kind of invigorated by it. Did you guys kind of, Mm -hmm. after all this build up to Out One, after years of it being locked away and kind of finally emerging, how did you guys feel about it on a personal level?
2: What do you think, Karen?
1: Uh, well, I think I, I did. I appreciate it. I respect it, and I, I'd say I like it. Now, it's it is a challenging film, like like we said. I would never recommend it to anybody other than a cinephile, and I would not recommend it as anybody's first French New Wave film or friend or uh, Rivette film. Uh, yeah, I think the grand sum of, total of its parts, I, I did like it. If I were probably to put a rating on it, I boy, I don't even know if I could, but so, somewhere in the seven to eight range. Uh, however, it it is tough, and, uh, and I, I joked with Mark when I was uh, when I was preparing for it that I had a revet hangover during uh, parts <laughs> one and two, and I, I really did. I was I, the, while I was watching those first two parts, I was like tired all the time, like chronic fatigue, which I got over <laughs> by the time I got to the end. Um, but so, I, but I am glad I watched it, and I, and I will watch Spectre, and I think I'll enjoy it, mm-hmm. and uh, and also the, the the remainder of his work. Uh, and, and in fact, I think it actually it makes more sense connecting his early work with his later work. And I think I'll appreciate that more having seen this. Hmm. That's a
2: good point. Yeah. I I felt kind of like, uh, I felt like Aaron uh, too, with you know the. I found that as I was watching some of the early episodes, I was watching them at night, and that just was not oh, yeah. a good idea. So <laughs> I, I actually I started binging on Rivette to you know really fit it in for our, our our initial scheduled date, which worked better. I actually had a week off, so I had some time I can kind of. You know, pushed together, but I don't know. It, it, that was almost too much too. In that, I I think I would kind of like to to space it out a little bit. Be you know, because it is so much to take in, at least the first time. Uh, then maybe, you know, see it again on the big screen a second time. I, I think I could do that in, you know, a couple of days. But yeah, I mean and I think you suggested this too, Scott, that it does enrich the farther you are away from it. And I just feel like that is so much the case with so many films that are considered, you know, cinephile uh gems and that they are uh, better the more you consider them. And going through that documentary, I mean, I, I wish I'd known a little more about the film going in. I think it would have enriched it going in. But after, you know, learning, uh, I just, like Martin said, I just have so many notes and thoughts, um, some of them kind of half formed. And that's that's a good sign. That means I've engaged and and uh, thinking about the film. So yeah, it'll be a while till I revisit the, the full thing, but certainly do want to catch Spectre in the next you know year or two. I have only one note, and it was WTF. <laughs> 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 Pretty well, much encapsulates uh, it.
3: Yeah, like, I think even just, I should say, I, I watched it uh, once right away when the uh, box set arrived, and then I watched it a second time in anticipation of this uh, podcast, and I'm probably going to watch it, maybe not right away, but <laughs> in the near future, I, I just after listening to... Uh, this discussion—it's made me want to revisit and examine certain mm. things. And like, I think I can't stress enough how miraculous it is that this uh film is widely available. Like, I'm—I'm I'm a co-producer on the Flixwise podcast, where its host Lady P is going through the Sight and Sound list, the top 250 films, watching every one. And I, I think, like, I specifically said uh, when I first started, uh, "What are you going to do when you get to Out One?" Like, you'll never see that, but <laughs> here it is. It's—it's it's mm-hmm. a miracle. It really, really is.
1: So it is on the sight
3: and sound list? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know who voted for it, but I don't know, maybe Jonathan Rosenbaum or... Uh, I think he <laughs> did. I submitted all the votes. That
0: makes sense. Uh, no, <laughs> it's I th- just I think all out A lot of people like it. <laughs> yeah, after 1990, and especially after his tour again in 2007, it kind of uh, was enough in the conversation amongst dedicated cinephiles who lived in the right cities mm-hmm. for it to be shown and... Who are the types to vote on the sound list. I mean, the Puppet Master is on there. That's another film that isn't available anywhere else aside from being able to see it on a screen. Um, so that's kind of how those lists get formed. It's mm-hmm. easy, I think, in the home video age to assume that we all have access to the same things, but uh, those kind of lists and things are concentrated in metropolitan areas and are concentrated around people who have access to films that I think most of us will never get to see, or at least in the mm-hmm. near future. <laughs> Uh, getting to the releases themselves, I'm curious to hear about the packaging on the Carletta set because the rest of us have the Arrow set. It's a very handsome set. The transfer, I think, mm-hmm. is absolutely gorgeous. I'm glad we've reached this yes. point now where stuff like grain levels and exposure and all that doesn't. We don't expect it to be uh, all kind of uniform and level on a on a film like Out One that's only going to speak to a very small portion of the audience. You know, I mean, even Arrow's audience doesn't seem to be completely oh, on that's board with out. it. Oh, you are right there. Hello. Uh, hey. Uh, even Arrow's audience, you know, this set is isn't even sold out yet. You can still; it's limited to three thousand units, but it's still well available for those who want to get it. Um, but I, I thought the transfer was immaculate. I like that they kept the damage. And I like that they kept the hairs in the frame. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. All that kind of rough and tumble <laughs> stuff that someone some outfits would choose to delete, but they didn't.
1: I think it looked great. And a lot of people will say that uh, 16 millimeter blown up to 35, you can't tell the difference on Blu-ray. I disagree. I've seen, yeah, <laughs> I've seen both. And I think this looked fantastic. Uh, that, that's one thing. And just, you know, we talk about the film, I think really the cinematography, the shooting style the you know, the, the aesthetics are just amazing. Every, every scene, you know, even if it's tough to engage with, they all look great. And, uh, uh, and, and yeah, I think the cinematography is really special, also improv- improv- improvisational. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think it's a great package. And um, and I, I did get to watch uh, one other film, and and I'll watch the rest uh, later. And it looks tremendous on the shelf too. The Arrow version.
3: I'm I'm sure it's the same transfer on the it Arrow is. as the Carlotta. Yeah. I don't know if the end codes are identical or if that matters i've read people. that they are like to the yeah, th- yeah
0: it's bite I mean, you know <laughs> you know it's
3: absolutely yeah and i mean there's some things like i could see people maybe I, I mean if you're watching this you know what you're getting into but like there are shots where the focus is a little bit soft you know because they're shooting a load of the time completely spontaneously it's uh you know not everything's in that sharp focus and it has that 16 millimeter look it's very grainy at times so like but I think it's a very faithful, probably representation of what's on the print, even down to like yeah. uh, maybe mm-hmm. inconsistencies in the color temperature or things like that. You yeah, know? exactly. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty it's... close to
1: what you'd see in a
2: theater. At the one exactly. theater in yeah. 1971. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really felt that way. You know, with the with the grain did structure. Did you
3: find um, Did you find there was maybe a slight difference between the look of the? Um, full version compared to the specter i honestly I thought, didn't i thought like i don't know if it's just like when i watched them like the time of day or something like that but i thought like maybe the specter looked a little bit dimmer or like it didn't pop quite as much i mean it's like maybe not totally noticeable or uh, i i i don't know if too. like i know they mentioned that uh made Spectre from an internegative because they used the actual negative to make the full-length version, so I don't know if there was like just a part of my brain that was like looking for differences and uh, maybe seeing some that weren't there, but I, I kind of wondered if maybe it had um, it popped not quite as much.
1: Hmm
0: uh i guess Maybe it's my I, imagination I'd say I, I, I don't know no, i'd say i go i would go back and visit it but i, I don't really want to watch that <laughs> again so <laughs> probably not going to do that uh, but
1: it really was edited as a separate film so it, yes. it, if it was a little different it, you it know, would make it sense. the color grading it would be acceptable <laughs> we're not going to cry yell at arrow no. oh no no, no like, like i think that.
3: it's just, like from the transfer it's it's right 100 as
0: good as you can get with something like this how is the Carlotta set package? We get these kind of nice digipack things that look very handsome on the shelves. You like the packaging? Uh, the, yeah, they're um,
3: it's really like, digipack. Also, I'm sorry if I'm off mic. I'm turning around to look at it. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's got like a three little sort of digipack sections that kind of fold out. Um, there's the thickest one, of course, the long version, which has I think all the Blu-rays on one side and all the DVDs on the other. There's uh, Spectre, which is a little bit smaller and has the two DVDs and the one Blu-ray. And then there's the documentary, which has its own little case or section that you can fold out. And that's also on Blu-ray and DVD plus the, I think the essay or the booklet. Hmm. And it's pretty sturdy, like, um, you know, the packaging, it's uh, it's not flimsy and it looks nice on the shelf and it's the right proportions to sort
0: of fit alongside everything else. and I, I like it quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, even though this uh, out one is available on Netflix, I really I'm glad I went ahead and bought it when I did, so that the money was committed one way or the other. But uh, I like having it on the shelf. You know, it makes me mm-hmm. think about these films more often than I would otherwise. I think. And yeah, I, I think absolutely. like
3: if people aren't sure what they're going to think of uh, Rivet, you know, and or if they're locked to region A like the Carlotta one, that's perfectly fine if you can't or aren't sure about the aero set you know it, th- it looks great it's it's uh, you're not missing out on out one <laughs> i think it's it. worth
1: mentioning on uh, that the arrow set um the out one is region locked region b locked but mm-hmm. the rest of the discs um uh are not so, so i watched uh, duel on uh, my my region a player no problem and mm. i think merry-go-round and uh, i don't know how to say the n1 i know neither do i <laughs> i've been going with the new Roy, just uh new Roy, for listeners out no. there that's what we're doing that will that will also play on region a so if you want to buy the uh if you're not region uh free enabled you can buy the arrow just for those three films there you go
0: yeah i took Duel over to a friend's house and watched it there
1: mm-hmm. nice. uh but
0: i Which do want to should do with Duell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to g- get into those other films a, a bit if we're not too uh, tuckered out from the Out One discussion, because Duel, for me, is one of my favorite Revet films, especially. And it's the one that uh Aaron and Mark and I have all seen. Uh, Mark, it was your first Revet, and you said it really stood out to you. Does it remain kind of your favorite?
2: Yeah, I-, I would say. I mean, if I was going to go back to one, I would pick that one. Uh, I. I've certainly I, I like fantasy elements this one has it um it's not in your face really I mean it feels like a another big yet small kind of film and uh yeah I, I i liked the characters i mean the um actors are are certainly engaging and it made me think of um it wasn't necessarily i mean there's the fantastic elements i wouldn't there's not really you know, surreal elements, so I just wonder, you know, how much of it, an influence, watching Rivette, I keep thinking about, you know, is he, how much does he influence more, our more modern uh, directors, you know, like, was David Lynch a Rivette fan, did he ever watch his films at all, because they're, um, you know, just this really odd kind of, it seems like a secret society again, could be uh, this really big um, thing. I mean, it's, it's, I should say it involves the queen of the night and the queen of the sun. So as much as as that's a society, I mean, are they really from, um, you know, the moon and the sun or where do they come from? You know, those are kind of the the fantastic elements. But it still has the revet action of being, you know, stagey uh, like a play. So, you know, it, it was nice to kind of get that. Um, introduction and I don't you know I don't know how much we talked about it, but it, it does feel kind of like a documentary uh, fantasy movie you know, somewhat you know it does have that that style and even you know has the with the live piano accompaniment at the house I kept thinking mm-hmm. of you know like a silent film and even how maybe you know the pianist kind of plays into um maybe the the queen's power uh, so to speak so yeah i really found so much of it you know uh, i would say even more thoughtful than out 1 just in a in a shorter time frame i think there's more to chew on overall with out 1 but you take Duel and you've got <laughs> kind of um Sorry. you know revet in a capsule and you know i that's probably why you suggested it first i think it was a good suggestion for sure
0: yeah, I saw. I guess it was the third Revet film I saw overall, but it mm-hmm. kind of coalesces so much of what I love about him, and kind of packages it in this more. We talked about kind of the pulpy elements about one, but I think this is really like very much kind of a silent serial kind of aesthetic, and has that pulpy quality of being a detective movie with loose fantasy elements that you would find in a lot of silent serials. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned the premise of the whole like kind of galactic battle about it because that mm-hmm. seems like such a weird, outlandish thing. And by the time it finally reveals it in the movie, it does seem weird outlandish, but you've also kind of been suspecting it all along. It kind of, the way where kind of insinuates plot without directly <laughs> revealing it is very interesting in this film. Uh, Aaron, did you take to this one as much as me and Mark?
1: I did uh, like it quite a bit. I don't know if I quite, it's not my favorite revet. I think my favorite is still uh Le Pont de Nord. And, but that mm. one also took a little time to warm on me. Uh, but I, I did like it. I, I liked, you know, the the some of the sequences, like in the subway station, uh, or, or actually, actually, I think it was a, a train station, uh, and and I, the two performances, which of course, uh, same actresses as that mm-hmm. one, uh, uh, Juliette Bertot and Boule Oger, is that it? sounds yeah, it. I'd go with that. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, I think they're they're tremendous, and actually, they're they're more. Uh, I, I don't know if this was improvised in the same way but they seem a little more polished and uh and uh, more deliberate than uh the characters in act 1 uh, they seem to have like an idea uh, motivation that sort of thing uh and I think actually the ending—that's one thing. It's still a slower movie, uh, you know. It's no Blade Runner <laughs> or Transformers, <laughs> which itself
0: is not like. Yeah, it's funny that you went to Blade Runner as like an example of a fast-paced movie.
1: <laughs> Just the first thing off the top of my head, uh, yeah. Is we were talking about it earlier, but uh, ah. but even though it's it's slower and a little challenging, uh, maybe less so than Out One or or even Le Pont de Nord, it does pay off at the end, yeah. and I, I really enjoyed the ending. Also, same without one. Same with Le Pont de Nord. Uh, same with Paris belongs to us. So, and I, I think it's a. And I think what you said as far as it being an entry point. I mean, I'd that say,
3: all makes me really wanna. Everything that you're saying makes me really wanna watch it. i'm almost wondering if it might make a might make a good double bill with something like Alpha Bill. Or is oh is yeah, it, I can mm, see that sure. for sure. Okay, definitely. <laughs> uh I, I really wanna see it now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I recommend it. Now, I have a, a very a, a cinephile friend that I respect who uh, dis- has seen all of Rivette's work and dismisses everything after Out One as uh, silly, uh, prancing around as pirates. <laughs> so, um, uh, of course, they or,
2: or as queens of the night in the sun. <laughs>
1: right, he was making a you know being yeah. a, a facetious, but uh, so there is a little bit of silliness and fantastical uh, elements. But yeah, I think it's definitely worth watching, and it's a good entry point, I think, into his his work.
0: Well, as the only one of us who's seen uh, Neroid, I will say that is a lot of silly prancing around as pirates. I I could not – I mean I love Ruvet and I could not get into that movie at all until maybe the very ending. Yeah, I found it very difficult in part because I don't really care about pirates. Uh, (laughs) But it's also – the whole thing takes place in this kind of seaside castle – which is kind of a weird uh, environment for him. So I don't know how much of it is my own disinterest or maybe his own disinterest. You know, he kind of made those two films as part of a planned 4 film cycle. And I wonder if maybe that one would make more sense in contrast to what else he was planning, or if it was just him taking kind of the post Celine and Julie uh, uh, time to kind of capitalize on that and kind of live out kind of a lot of those dreams that he had of making movies in the vein of other movies he watched when he was younger. Uh, but it, yeah, that one didn't add up to me. But Duell, I think, kind of crystallizes a lot about Rivette in terms of playing with a mystery that is teased at and resolved in kind of an emotional and aesthetic way, but not a very kind of direct way. And I really like the physicality of the performances. Uh, mm-hmm. I think having a more... I think this one had an actual script to go... Uh, with the production. And I think that gave the actors a lot more room to more carefully maneuver themselves. I mean, by the time you get to the nightclub sequences and the way they have those kind of mirror columns and the way the performers interact with those and the way the camera interacts with them, I think it's just also, it's really graceful and really seductive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the actors
2: word. in space you talked about earlier again. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, he, he's kind of turning things on its head a little bit too with some of the dialogue again. I mean, I, I was thinking of you know just the title uh, out one versus in, we've got, you know, Paris belongs to us. And then the opening title of Paris belongs to nobody. And within duel, he's saying, you know, two and two no longer make four. Um, and there's a, a countdown of, you know, seven, eight, nine, five, three, six, two in the credits. So he's just keeping us on our toes, throwing things off uh, a bit in, in each one of his films that I that I've seen so far. And just FYI, a couple of those numbers add up to 13. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> of course they do. Conspiracy.
1: <laughs> so, uh, what about merry-go-round, Scott? I, I, I didn't get to it, but uh, I, I believe you have, have you?
0: Uh, yeah. I, I think that's – I really liked it quite a bit. It's uh, mm-hmm. even more oddly paced than I think any of these others in terms of setting up certain expectations and uh, – there's a character who they're, they start the film looking for, and you kind of suspect she's going to remain off screen for most of it, but then they end up finding her like a half hour end, and then she disappears again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of pervasive mystery is interesting. It has these intercut sequences in the forest in which, oh man, I cannot pronounce the actress's name, but the lead actress in Duel, uh, Hermione Kerguz, maybe. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, she was yeah. the wore the purple in uh, Out One. Yeah. The, the green and 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 pink. She kind of
0: reemerges in merry-go-round in these sort of sequences that you can't figure out why they're there or if they're connected to the main narrative at all, but they're kind of seductive and interesting on their own. And uh, from a cinematography standpoint, it has a use of color that I think is more evolved and considered compared to these earlier films. You know, Out 1 is very much... The costuming, I think you could say, is deliberate in some of the decor. Um, But I think as he kind of grew as a director, he started to consider sort of a planned mm-hmm. uh cinematographic look more than he had before. And I think you really see that in Merry Go Round. There's nothing that I kinda of, kinda of link thematically to it, but there's just a way that the colors interplay that feels considered. And I think you see that in that in Duel as well.
1: Yeah, right definitely. Mm. What's funny is uh is At one has this uh mammoth Wikipedia page, but Mary go Merry Go Round says uh, a 1981 film by Jacques Rivette, starring Maria Schneider and Joe <laughs> D'Alessandro. That's it.
0: <laughs> yeah. As much as uh, people kind of hate on Wikipedia, that out outlandic- on Wikipedia entry is spot on and a yes. great resource.
1: Hmm. It helped me a lot. Just trying it, to keep up great with his. It
3: um, <laughs> as I was rereading it, I was like, oh, that's what was happening in that
0: scene.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it, parts
0: where it, it sort of clarified certain things for me. And confirming yeah. that certain characters do indeed not show up.
1: And it's just proof that, that people have really engaged with this film. Uh, so, oh yeah, well,
0: it's, it's Rivette is like cinephile catnip. You know, he gives us these <laughs> mysteries that you can investigate as much as you want, and ultimately not be able to solve at all. Fine, <laughs>
1: they were making that. it up the whole time. <laughs> yeah, a bit, do um, you think
3: some of the uh, later films are a little bit lost in the shadow of Out One? Or, I mean, uh, I do. Celine and Julie certainly seems to stand up to Out One's reputation as a very, very highly regarded film. But uh, I think like some of these. Like Le Pont de Nord, I, I sort of think should be more highly regarded, and of course, the ones i, I haven 't seen sound like they 're quite
1: interesting too so well, these three didn 't do so well as I understand it, and i especially uh Duell and nora white <laughs> <laughs> uh, i i 'm not sure about marrying around, so I, I think that that might have hurt le pont de nord but um but uh, there's a general revet resurgence, and I think these box sets are a big part of it, and of course uh. La Pont de Nord came out on Masters of Cinema and is is it Kino in the US? Yeah. Yeah, so they're out there. Uh, I'd and like yeah. to see his later work come out more.
0: Uh, some of that is a little more out there because, I mean, especially the 2000s stuff came out in an era where home video is more kind of an entrenched market. So I think his post-90s stuff is all pretty easy to get a hold of. There's some stuff lost in the shuffle, maybe, and definitely in the 80s and 70s as we know. Um, but it, it's starting to get out there. And I think uh, if anyone is at this point in the podcast listening who isn't that into vet, uh I think it's easier to get into than I think maybe we even get the credit for because he's kind of engaging with those kind of genre and pulpy elements. Right now on my screen, I'm looking at one of the scenes in the aquarium in Duel and which is kind of mm-hmm. a direct outgrowth of uh, Lady of Shanghai, but because it kind of has this detective story trappings, um that's kind of why i kind of keep pointing mm-hmm. to it as a good starting point for revet because it has a lot of things we've seen in other movies just from a different perspective
3: or you yeah, have le pot de nord ends with a kung fu fight arts yeah. fight if like it's mm-hmm. you know you can watch that you can enjoy it. you don't have to be uh uh intellectualizing I, every aspect of the film to follow the plot and get invested in the mystery the excitement of it so.
1: yeah very very similar to out one just uh not as much of a time investment <laughs>
2: It's interesting. The it it's kind of a, a you know surprising and shock when you do actually get uh, action within uh, Revet films you know, like a, like that, which I haven't a, there, seen. There, like
3: a spider web gun, like that's straight out of nineteen uh, tens pulp. Like it's such a weird... yeah. yeah. It's like from a Batman cartoon or something. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I was thinking of the the action in uh, what is it where, where Pauline hits the the guy in her oh, yeah. uh, cafe. It's like that's <laughs> really the only kind of action like that in the. Everything else is just kind of simmering, like where you know Sarah is is staring at uh, Pauline, just you know backed out one, just you know interesting with mm-hmm. with uh, with Rivette.
0: Oh yeah, well that scene kind of we've talked a couple times about Lynch in this episode, and that scene really reminded me of kind of a Dave Lynch move. And I think filmmakers mm-hmm. like him have kind of paved the way for. Uh, contemporary movie fans to kind of go back to these mysterious things that, you know, we kind of recognize that they don't have to add up and can kind of just be about the thrill of the chase.
1: Well, I think a lot of modern filmmakers are influenced by Rivette, too. Uh, on the documentary, they mentioned uh, Kashish. Uh, he did uh, Blue is the War- Warmest Color and uh, Couscous, or Secrets of the Grain. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he also gets a lot of footage. In fact, they I think they said he gets like six, 63 hours of footage, but he, he cuts oh, wow. it down. Yeah, or... I, that might have been an exaggeration uh but uh yeah I, th- even, I think his.
3: Um, i thought a little bit of all of our sas's films like, i could uh, see something that like, yeah, sure. but like that's Ur-Mabet, also definitely. maybe less influenced by revet as sort of pulling from common roots and oh shucks i talked while it was cutting out and you were talking too i'm sorry
1: <laughs> that's you, you didn't interrupt me it's fine uh i'm actually googling uh people influenced by Jacques Rivette. It's tough to find. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) it's sort
3: of part of it, like, made me think a little bit of uh, uh, you know, like Irma Bep or Clouds of Sils Maria sometimes.
0: Well, and that uh, improvisational working method Mm -hmm. is actually something Terrence Malick uses nowadays, you know. He he Mm -hmm. kind of has loose ideas, Mm -hmm. and his characters are a little bit more built in advance, but for the most part, when you read kind of the behind the scenes of the last couple of Malick movies, they read is very similar to behind the scenes of one. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
3: That's true. Uh, in a party scene for Knight uh, of Cups. They, they yeah, throw exactly. Throw you in and just say like, "What, what was the?" bit uh, They said like, um, I, "I forget what the guy said exactly." But somebody was on set said like, "Oh, you just said this phrase to me," and I asked if, if oh that yeah, the line no of dialogue, and he's like, wall. <laughs> "Right," and he's <laughs> like, "I don't know. You tell me." It just throws <laughs> him into the scene. Um, I, I think that's great, actually. And like a lot of people might consider what. Uh, jacobet or terence malik like uh, some people sort of that's their idea of like bad directing but i, I think the results are so interesting and so amazing that uh, you know like i can't call it that i
0: it's too good <laughs> mm-hmm. well that that's this is getting into a whole larger philosophical thing but the more films <laughs> i watch the less i kind of have a good uh strict sense of what a bad choice is you know mm-hmm. every film kind of justifies itself
3: yeah i think like some people they go in with this like uh, almost a checklist of. Uh, Okay, it has this, 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 and this. It adds right. up to a good movie instead of sure. responding to it and trying to understand their response and break that down. You know, on, I think it's its, it's sort of yeah. easier to kind of have like a ready-made opinion than to develop one, which is sometimes a little bit painful, especially when you're talking about uh, you know a thirteen-hour-long film or mm-hmm.
2: you know. Yeah, I mean, Out 1 could suffer from just expectations, too. You know, if you are a cinephile going in, if you just don't hit its wavelength um, (laughs) for 13 hours, you know, you could kind of get lost and uh, not appreciate it as much. And, I, you know, kind of an off-use phrase, I know it's, you know, cliche to say this, but I think it does apply to really Revet in general, but especially Out 1. You do just need to let the movie... Go in front of you. Let it, you know, the term, let it wash over you. Just watch the thing. Take some notes if you want to follow the conspiracy like the X-Files, <laughs> like a X X-Files mythology. But, you know, just just let it go. And then, um, right. you know, think about it. Uh, it'll come back to you in a, a month or a, a week or a day. It, sure. it helps
3: to go in looking more for insight than uh, maybe self-gratification watching its films, I, I think. Mm. Yeah, like yeah. There, there's uh, maybe a certain attitude we should have while watching the film uh like less like okay you know this 13 hour long film all right with your arms crossed impress me and i right. think like you know it's better to sort of go in with an open mind and open heart and see what it has to offer and get lost in it i think that's where its real pleasure lies and in, instead of it's I, it's I don't really know th- what people might expect from it
1: yeah, it's really a test hmm. of endurance too uh and, you know, frankly, if it weren't for this podcast, I probably would have bailed out after the second episode maybe. Uh, so I, I'm actually grateful we're doing this, and I would recommend people that if, if you listen this far, well, I'm, I'm guessing you've probably seen all 13 hours. But if not, I would say stick with it because it is rewarding and it is a, a worthwhile uh, um, exercise in endurance. Uh, hmm. It does pay off. In fact, I'd say it pays off after the first really four or five hours. So, yeah, I, I – I think it's how many other films do
3: you watch where it's like oh no there's only two and a half hours
0: left how are they going to tie all this back together <laughs> well yeah and especially when it kept right. cutting back to the theatrical exercise in the last episode i was like we only have so much time here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, same reaction. go back yes. to the beach
2: <laughs> but definitely uh it's a good sunday morning sunday afternoon movie uh don't don't start it at midnight for sure yes, right. yes. not, I not a be...
1: weeknight after a d- tough day at work
2: no
0: um well I th- I think we've we've come somehow come to the end and yet not even gotten to the beginning of out one but uh That's right. Good thank point. you all for joining me on this uh lazy saturday afternoon afternoon for you guys anyway it's morning for me my day is just getting started. Uh but uh Aaron and Mark what's going on at the close up do you have anything else you guys want to promote online?
2: Uh Yeah we've got some some shows uh coming up and some some interviews uh we talked about them briefly on the newsstand. uh on the Criterion Cast, but yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about Only Angels Have Wings, a Howard Hawks film, and The Manchurian Candidate coming up um, in probably about a you know another week, week and a half, and some yeah some nice interviews lined up. So. Good. We're
1: also going to do a, a Brighter Summer Day with uh, this some jerk named scott and i <laughs> <laughs> so i but we're not sure about the the time frame but probably probably in the next month or so month or two and i think we that's waited this
0: long it. for it to come out what's well, a little bit longer <laughs> to discuss
2: it well you
1: know 13 hours four hours yeah <laughs> it's gonna
2: it's gonna seem easy it, it yeah. will no yeah
0: so. uh martin what about you over at Flixwise or anything else
3: yeah uh people can hear more of me at Flixwise. some of the recent episodes have been uh Carl Dreyer's Gertrude, which uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, if you like the discussion about At One, you might enjoy that. We also talked about, uh, there's an episode on The End of the World, which is a classic Danish 1916 disaster film. And yeah. uh, I think mm-hmm. maybe by the time people hear this, or very shortly, there should be an episode up about Close Up, the Abbas Kiarostami film,
0: so... They have that mm. to look forward to.
3: Never heard oh, of it. Name'sake.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, as nice. for me, I was just on Battleship Pretension, talking about the great TCM Classic Film Festival, and got uh, some stuff up at Criterion Cast. I recently reviewed. Uh, what did I recently review there? Ah, I can't remember. But I recently reviewed Captain America: Civil War about Battleship Pretension, and I'll be, <laughs> we'll be talking about uh, Armageddon on the latest episode of Criterion Cast in a couple weeks. <laughs>
1: Nice. Oh, and, <laughs> wow.
0: Uh, probably by the time I think this goes up, you guys have already heard the new Creature Hearing Cast Chronicles. But if you haven't, go back and listen to that, talking about the April releases.
1: Yeah. Should be fun.
0: Yeah. yeah. I know. It, it, this will be in the future and in the past at the same time, probably. <laughs> um,
2: Sounds like Privet.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks again, for everyone, for joining me. Thanks, thank uh, so listeners, much. for slogging through this long episode with us. But there's a lot to talk about. You can't just cut it short.
2: It's
1: been a blast. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. yeah thank thank you. you, Scott. Thank you. But.